Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And welcome back to the thrilling conclusion of the Mothman Krako tale. But then uh, we have a part two to this that isn't directly Mothman sightings. Uh, it, it talks about uh, some of the sightings that our friend John Keel uh, had experienced around the area and around the time of the Mothman sightings. And uh, John Keel, along with a lot of other people, think that these things are related and that Mothman has something to do with aliens. Because everything comes back to aliens. I mean, yeah, you, you could argue that. Tomato pie, it's just aliens. Cracko just doesn't have a friend anymore. Wait, no, I take it back. <laughs> you can't do this to me. <laughs> so moving on to other sightings that aren't exactly Mothman, but may possibly be related. Um, we mentioned John Keel writing the Mothman prophecies. Um, I don't know at what point or for what reason he decided to change his name, I guess, because it's just easier to, to spell and try to pronounce. But uh, he was born Alva John Keel and Keel was spelled K-I-E-H-L-E. Now he switched things around and he's John Alva Keel, K-E-E-L. I don't I, I guess he just thought it was a little easier, but. I, I mean, it is easier to spell. I, I don't know if it it's was true. necessary, but it's definitely easier. Yeah. I guess people, a lot of people were confused about how to pronounce his last name, so he was like, let me just make it easy for you. But John Keel was an American journalist and influential UFOlogist. I don't know if they're supposed to be UFOlogist or UFOlogist. I have never heard of a date either. It, it's spelled like UFOlogist, but and fair enough. Um, a UFOlogist, let's just go with that. Because that, that sounds better. A person who studies UFOs. Yes, he's a journalist and influential person who's, who studies UFOs. Uh, he's more uh, commonly known as the person who wrote the Mothman prophecies. Uh, Keel was born in Hornell, New York, and he was the son of a small-time band leader. His parents separated, and he was raised by his grandparents. And he was interested in magic tricks. And he had his first story published in a magician's magazine when he was just 12 years old. Aww. So he's been writing for a long time, apparently. But he left uh, he left school at the age of 16 after taking all of the science courses. Apparently, he was just like, I got all the science I wanted. I'm going to head out. It was around this time that uh, after that, he started working as a freelance contributor to newspapers and uh, script writer for local radio and television outlets. And uh, he wrote several pulp articles such as, are you a repressed sex fiend? Different. These are very important information in these articles. This is a part of the, the Mothman stuff that is new to me that I haven't actually looked much into until we started doing this and we started doing more research on it. But apparently John Keel also served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War uh, on the staff of the American Forces Network at Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, supposedly, according to him, he claimed that while he was in the army, he was trained in psychological warfare as well as a propaganda writer. So it was his job to make all the propaganda flyers and posters for the psychological warfare portion. 
But after leaving the military, he started working as a foreign radio correspondent in Paris, Berlin, Egypt, and Rome. So he was kind of like all over the place. Uh, in uh, 1957, he wrote a book called Jadu, that's J-A-D-O-O, which tells of his adventures in India and Egypt investigating the Indian rope trick and the Yeti. Apparently, India and Egypt have their own Yeti. That's news to me. That might be another thing to research. Unless that's just the Yeti. It's weird that it's Egypt and India, but fair enough. Well, yeah, because, like, they're not, they're not that close to each other. So it's not like... Not like he's just like walking across the border. Like the Yeti have a flyer? Not really, no. Well, if he was in India and Egypt and he was investigating the Indian rope trick in the Yeti, I would think he would investigate the Indian rope trick in India. Does this mean Egypt has a Yeti? Maybe. It's Jeff. Jeff's moving again. Oh, damn it, Jeff. We, we got to do something about Jeff. I guess he's just trying to find the perfect place to open up his coffee shop. Can we just write like a 50s sitcom? about Jeff the Yeti trying to blend in and open his coffee shop. <laughs> he he has the he has the perfect recipe for like the the most delicious glazed donuts. But and he makes the, the perfect cup of cold brew. Yeah, and nobody will let him. Exactly. Poor Jeff. I'm moving on from Jeff and his shenanigans. <laughs> in 1966, John wrote a, a novel called the... Let me try not to get tongue-tied here because I don't know why he would name a book something like this, but, you know, fair enough. He wrote a novel called The Fickle Finger of Fate. Okay. Apparently it was a spoof novel based on the spy and superhero genre, like if Superman went undercover as an American spy in Vietnam or something like that. So it sounds interesting. That's one word for it. <laughs> but uh, that name is, 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 is interesting, but that name, that name is, is very difficult. And apparently uh, he was also part of the Screenwriters Guild and wrote several TV show scripts such as Get Smart. Oh. But other than that, that's his, uh, trying to think of the word for it here, that's his more normal work. Before he started getting into his other works, uh, apparently the term Men in Black came from John Keel. He's the one who started saying Men in Black. Oh. He wrote a piece for the Men's Adventure magazine. It was a saga titled UFO Agents of Terror. And he also wrote UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse, Eighth Tower, and then, of course, the Mothman Prophecies. But supposedly he's the one that started using Men in Black, and then I guess it kind of caught on because it was just a... Because here come the Men in Black. wonder how many times we'll get that. I don't know what you're talking about. Fine, it just it just happens. Anytime we say the Men in Black, the song just plays. What? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't hear anything. Yeah, it's weird. I didn't hear anything that time either. Anyway, Keel is most famous for uh, the latter book, The Mothman Prophecies, that dealt with this strange phenomenon that we just talked about uh, in and around Point Pleasant area of West Virginia and possibly even China, Chernobyl, Germany, and now Chicago. Uh, the, in, uh, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, that ended in the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which stretched over the Ohio River. But in his works, he puts forth the, the hypothesis that extraterrestrials are not, in fact, aliens, but maybe some ultra-terrestrial. He states that these beings have been shaping the human race for centuries using shape-shifting, that they have presented themselves as gods, demons, angels, 
and strange. And here we go with the words again that Ranger loves to give me, knowing I can't even speak English sometimes. Dirigibles? Dirigibles? I'd have no clue what a dirigible is, but apparently that's the thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he just made up words and threw them in here just to try to see if I would read them. Probably Krako Man of the Ritz yeah. variety. They presented themselves as gods, demons, angels, and strange Krakos of the Ritz variety. The, but these dirigibles were apparently, what, whatever those are, um, were seen in the late 1800s. And most every other paranormal phenomenon man has been able to witness over the course of history apparently is also links back to aliens, according to John Keel. I googled what dirigible is, and it is a dirigible airship, especially one with a rigid structure. There we go, and we have Google in the background <laughs> deciding to chime in and give you their research. Yes, yes, Google, that, that is fine. Yes, thank you. So basically, you. they presented themselves as gods, <laughs> demon, angels, and airplanes. You better leave this Stop. in. This is this is perfect. Leave this Stop. in. The machines are taking over. No. I told you your computer has a Decepticon in it, and and now it's moved on to the Google Home. When when the Google Home lights up and says the the robot takeover is now, it's time to just leave. Yeah. So anyway, um, so a blimp is a non-rigid airship airship that doesn't have air shrimp. Yeah, it has no internal structural framework. Yeah, fair enough. Whereas a dirigible has a rigid structure. For people like me who want things made as simple as possible, basically UFOs. Uh, Zeppelins. It's a little... Yeah, I don't understand why... Why is this in here? I'm not sure. Apparently these strange ultra-terrestrial beings have presented themselves and have been shaping the human race for centuries... They were using shape-shifting and have presented themselves as gods, demon, angels, and apparently zeppelins or blimps. I'm so confused. I'm assuming that to mean a flying like a structure UFO. with yeah. no... Basically a UFO, but it's like a flying thing with no... It's like a hollow body, basically. Right, it's hollow, yeah. Flying things. So UFOs, basically. flying objects. Yes. And supposedly... Ranger, I love you. Why couldn't you just put UFO? It is basically just UFO. But I appreciate the, the new word that we have learned. The word of the day, dirigible. I'm going to the airport to watch the dirigibles. <laughs> Alfred, fetch me my dirigible. I'm going to start using that word more. Fetch me my dirigible mechanics magazine. The bat dirigible is broken again. <laughs> fetch me the mechanics magazine. What the fuck are we doing? Children, wake up. We're going to be late for our dirigible flight. Father, can we go to the airport to watch the dirigibles? Mother, I have been a good I have been a good little boy and and perchance we could go to the airport to watch the dirigibles. <laughs> when mother seems to be in good spirits, perchance she will let you go to the airport to watch the dirigibles. <laughs> this is why Ranger puts these words in here cuz he knows we're going to go on a tangent. All right, we can do this. I have the tiger. Moving on until we get to another word that that just stumps us completely. Apparently, these, these aliens have presented themselves as many things throughout the course of history. 
and supposedly John Keel thinks that that's the explanation for paranormal sightings is it's just these ultra terrestrial beings. So ghosts are just aliens. He also posits the idea that these beings are an ancient human race or that these beings are interdimensional. This leads us into the shadowed eerie domain domain of West Virginia's most infamous cryptid and gives background into what Keel reports there. So the first one that we're getting into is Indrid Cold. I'd heard the name before, but this again is something I didn't really do much research into until until this, so that was kind of new to me. But apparently it's one of the more famous entities to come from this story besides the big moth itself, as Ranger described it. <laughs> it's like you have the big cheese and you've got the big moth. It's just a big old moth puppy just flying around West Virginia. It's fine. But besides the big moth, we have injured cold. The story begins on a dark West Virginia road. Mr. Woodrow Derenberger. Derenberger? Berger? Uh... Berger? How I would call that Derenberger, but I don't actually know. That would probably make most sense for my brain to try to pronounce, so I'm going to go with that unless told otherwise. Mr. Woodrow Derenberger had driven to Marietta, Ohio for a business trip and was on his way home to Mineral Wells, West Virginia. He was a sewing machine salesman, so he had shown a client the sewing machine earlier in the day and he'd realized he'd forgotten to do some maintenance to the sewing machine after he'd left the client's house earlier that day. So apparently, what better place to stop and work on your sewing machine than the side of the road instead of waiting till you're home? So that's that's where I do all my sewing machine repairs, just on the side of the road in the middle of the night in West Virginia. But he fixed the machine without incident and continued driving home. And after a while on the road... He noticed lights up on the road. He he thought that they were just police officers, so he stopped, only to discover that the lights didn't belong to a car, but what to what he said was an aircraft that looked like a kerosene lamp chimney. Kerosene lamp chimney? I need an example of this as well, because I know what a kerosene lamp looks like, but I don't recall them ever having a chimney. Same. Unless some of them have fittings that, like, you can put... Oh, the chimney is basically the glass oh, thing that goes on top of the lamp. I call that the glass thing that goes on top of the lamp. Basically, yeah. But apparently that's the chimney, so this aircraft looked like... Okay, okay. ...the glass that would you would see over a kerosene lamp. That makes more sense now. So, Derenberger said a man stepped out and approached his truck... Because who, would, who wouldn't be just sitting there watching this and waiting for this thing to approach you that just stepped out of this giant kerosene lamp? Yeah, yeah, no. But apparently he looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being. Uh, Darren Berger told this to Ronald Maines during an interview on WTAP-TV in Parkersburg, West Virginia, the day after the encounter. He said his face looked like he had a good tan, a deep suntan. It wasn't too dark, but it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back, and it was dark brown, and he seemed to have a good thick head of hair. His eyebrows, his face, his features, everything was normal. I don't believe that he looked any different from any other man you would meet on the street, but he wasn't normal. Derenberger said he had a large grin and kept his arms folded with his hands up under his armpits. And though he spoke to Derenberger, his smile never moved. He spoke, Derenberger said, telepathically. Okay, that, that that's interesting and stuff like that, but he really seemed to care about this dude's tan. 
Yeah, he was. It was like he had never seen a man with a tan before. He was just like this man was very, very tan. Did I mention he was tan? He had a deep tan. He was very tan. Yeah, he was very tan. Apparently, the tans stood out to him that he had to make sure that everyone knew this man was very tan. But okay, uh, uh, I feel like I would have been like, "Hey guys, um, this dude talked to me telepathically." Yeah. Then he was just like, "Oh, he also never stopped smiling because he spoke to me in my thoughts." Anyway, did I mention he was tan? <laughs> like really tan not really dark though just like a nice deep tan like a deep tan but just wasn't really dark brown but just like he he was out in the sun a lot like he had a nice tan sounds like it sounds like someone who was jealous of a tan <laughs> i mean i can relate i'm about as pale as you, you can be and like i don't tan i go white red back to white so he had a really, really nice tan. Like, you could tell, you could tell he spent a lot of time in the sun. Yeah, not not dark. Just a, it, it was not super dark, but you know, it was like a, it, you know, just a deep tan. <laughs> yeah, he was very tan. Other than that, other than him being very tan, Derenberger said he asked me to roll down the window on my right on the right hand side of my truck, and I did what he asked. Darren Berger said during the interview, this man stood there and he first asked me what I was called. And I told him my name and he asked me, he said, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. We mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And I told him my name. And when I told him that, he said he was called cold. This was Darren Berger and the world's introduction to the entity known as Indrid Cold. I don't exactly know where the Indrid part came in at, unless we're getting to that later on. Possibly. We'll see. However, this wasn't the first time that this entity was reported being seen. Apparently other people had witnessed this very tan, very, very tan gentleman. But not dark. Not dark, just really tan. He spent a lot of time in the sun. So this wasn't the first time this entity was reported being seen. The encounter occurred in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, around 9.45 p.m., on the night of October the 11th, 1966, two boys, Martin, who had the nickname Mouse, Munov, and James, Jimmy. You want to help me out with that last name there? Yankitis. Fair enough. That was completely different from what I was going to say. I'm glad I had you do that. <laughs> James, Jimmy, Yankitis were walking home along New Jersey and 4th Street when they turned onto a road that ran adjacent to the elevated New Jersey Turnpike. That ran what? There was... Wait, what? It ran what? Oh, no. Here we go. Adjacent. I said what I said, and I'm standing by it. It ran adjacent to the elevated New Jersey turnpike. Oh, listen here, you city folks ain't going to try to tell me what adjacent and ad adjacent are. You're confusing me. Okay. Why must we do this? Why can't we just speak English? <laughs> we are speaking English. Adjacent is a very English word. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <laughs> Today on Krako Learns a New Word. Anyway, they were walking home along New Jersey and 4th Street when they turned onto a road that ran adjacent to the elevated New Jersey Turnpike. There was a treacherous... Tre see what you've done? <laughs> Words have left my brain. Look at what you did. Are you proud of yourself? Would you like me to finish reading? Is, is, that, is that it? Because I can pronounce things. I, I. This is fine. I'm fine. There was a treacherously steep 30-foot slant running from the hectic turnpike 
above them, all the way down to the tall wire fence that ran parallel to the route that Munov and Yankaitis were walking. See, I know words. Do you? It's one of those things. It's one of those things where it's like you got a very steep hill. You can't walk down it. You just got to run down it and hope you can stop yourself at the end. I mean, you could roll. Usually that's what I do and, and I end up pronouncing things the wrong way. That's when you hit like rocks and stumps on the way down while rolling down the hill. I trip it. I like no matter what, I trip and fall. So I might as well just start rolling from the beginning. Fair enough. But the decline on the other side of the fence was so steep that the boys had never seen anyone attempt to scale it, nor had they ever seen anyone on the opposite side of the rusted fence. But this night would prove to be an exception to this rule. Both Munov and Yankaitis were nervous as they slipped in and out of the pools of light cast by the street lamps above, and they had heard that a neighborhood woman had been chased by a tall green man earlier that evening in the same area. Uh, so why else wouldn't we go out at night after hearing that? Yeah. Now it just makes me think that there's some dude in one of those green suits running around after people. Probably. It's, it's the first person to invent a uh, green screen suit. He just wanted to, to prank some people in the neighborhood. But uh, after hearing that and they're out for their nightly walk, because why not? Little could the boys predict that when they stopped to catch their breath a few moments later, that their date with the unknown would be about to begin. It was Yankaitis who first noticed the ominous humanoid figure standing in the thick scrub brush behind Munov on the opposite side of the fence. He appeared to be ignoring the boys and staring at a house across the road. Yankaitis would later describe the uh, smirking brute for both the police and Keel. He was the strangest guy we've ever seen. He was standing behind that fence. I don't know how he got there. He was the biggest man I ever saw. The anxious Yankaitis wasted no time in alerting his unwary pal about the scary silhouette that was stationed behind him. Munov slowly turned and saw a huge figure clad in a green one-piece suit that seemed to be reflecting the streetlight above. So, you're probably right, it is just a really tall man in a green screen suit, is what it sounds like. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of when they invented the green screen for, like, movie effects. I mean, this is in 1966, so, I mean, I have a feeling they had green screen stuff back then because... When was the Blob filmed? Was it before or after that? I can't remember. I know it's older. Uh, 1958. Because they had green effects then. So, yeah, they had green screen stuff then. Yeah, it wasn't digital the way it is now, but, like, they would replace backgrounds and... Yeah, so they had the ability to do that at the time. So it's not impossible. But what's weird is I don't think green screen material reflects streetlight or lights in general. That I don't know. He just had a reflective green screen suit on. He wanted to at least be safe so that way like, he wouldn't get hit by traffic. <laughs> He's just wearing a reflective vest on top of his green screen suit. But Munov's account is in his report to the police and it goes as follows. Jimmy nudged me and said, who's that guy standing behind you? I looked around and there he was behind that fence just standing there. He pivoted around and looked right at us and he grinned a big old grin. The two young men, evidently wise beyond their years, listened to their fry. Uh, that that's apparent. Why did I try to read that as fright? 
fright or flight? I don't know. Where did the water come from in there? I can't English tonight. All right, fair enough. Anyway. Maybe it's because the um, F and the I are adjacent to each other. Possibly that or it's just me. <laughs> I'll go with the second one. It's just me. Mm, yeah. The two young men, evidently wise beyond their years, listened to their fight or flight instinct and wasted no time in exiting the scene before the eerie emerald apparition could scale the fence and take pursuit. So just imagine that. Let's take a moment to imagine that you and your friend are out late at night standing under a streetlight and you see a fence that you've never seen anyone climb before. You've never seen anyone on the opposite side because it's just a very steep hill on the other side. So why would you go over there? One night you're standing outside and you see a very tall man, possibly like seven foot tall in a green screen suit on the other side of the fence and you turn to run from him. And he climbs the fence and starts coming after you. Yeah, no, this is why I don't go outside. Th- this this is why introverts are a thing. <laughs> we've seen some stuff and we don't want any part of it. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Exactly. But on this same night, about 40 miles away, three police officers and one of their wives, who was with the officer at the time, saw a ball of brilliant white light in the sky. They say that it was as big as a car, and one officer said it shone from over 300 yards away and that he looked away and he couldn't see for 20 minutes that it was so bright. Whoa. So Darren Berger is not the only one to have strange encounters in the area at that time. Yeah. I have no clue what happened. Uh, hopefully those boys are all right. Apparently they are since they gave the police encounter. I don't know what happened to the green man that, that chased after them. I guess he just kind of left. I mean... He has things to do in his life. He wasn't running after them. He was running because he was late or he left his stove on or something. That's that's all it was. He had to get to work. It was late. Yeah, exactly. The, the movie was waiting for their green screen man. Yeah, he was just out on a smoke break. Yeah, and he got lost. But going back to Derenberger, he claimed to have been visited by Indrid several more times, according to Keel. However, that probably wasn't for the best. Darren Berger lost his job, his wife, and his peace for coming out with this story. Apparently, everyone just kind of thought he was crazy and was just like, "We don't want anything to do with this. We're gonna, we're gonna head out." Wait, so I understand. Oh, okay, I get it now. I'm like, he lost his job and his wife. I understood that, and then you said his peace, and I'm he like, got no peace. I don't understand. Like people wouldn't leave him alone and stuff. Okay. Yeah, basically, yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. At first, news people came out in droves. He was basically like a celebrity, and he even wrote a book on his experience. But due to the notoriety and ridicule, he went to a doctor who gave him a clean bill of health. He wanted to confirm that he he wasn't didn't have anything mentally wrong with him, and it was that it wasn't a hallucination or yeah, something like that. He didn't just yeah. imagine all of that. Uh, So they gave him a clean bill of health and confirmed that he had no chemical imbalances or disruptions. And in the end, he was ridiculed and mocked locally. And eventually the pressure grew to be too much for Mrs. Derenberger. And so she divorced him. Oh, sad. I mean, it's kind of understandable. Your husband comes home and says that he saw and spoke with a man from space. Yeah, but like... And starts writing books about it and telling people about it, but... Yeah, I guess. I guess. Because, like... It would be stressful. Chris and I both have mental health issues, and we stick by each other. But I guess it's different from having actual mental health issues, like anxiety and depression, and saying an alien visited you. Yeah. Yeah. Now now that I I talked myself through it, I'm like, oh, okay. You kind of see it a little bit. 
But after all of this, he suffered from depression and painful headaches, and other members of his family blamed him and his story for lost jobs and friends. And eventually he moved away to get away from the the publicity and the notoriety and everything. Eventually he would move back to the Mineral Springs area and he died in 1990, um, 20 years since that fateful night when he was stopped on the road. Uh, but through all of this, he never recanted the story and he never discussed it again. It's so crazy like when you think how one thing can completely redefine your entire life. Yeah, especially I can, I, I can kind of see how people that witness UFOs and like have a prolonged sighting for that stuff kind of tend to get lost in it. Yeah, yeah. Because I probably would, too, if I saw something like that and had an experience like that. I would have been like, I don't need sleep. I need answers. Still sad, though. I mean, I met you and I'm still able to sleep sometimes. Fair enough. It's understandable. How? That is the injured cold story. Next, we will move on to another incident, which was known as the Cornstalk's Curse. I, I, I didn't know you could curse a cornstalk. Apparently you can. This goes back even further. Uh, so apparently as the American frontiersmen began to move west in the 1770s, seven nations of Indians. I'm going to butcher a few of these names probably, and I apologize. But uh, the, these seven nations were the Shawnee, Delaware. I'm not sure if that's Wyandotte or Wyandotte. Mingo, Miami. Ottawa and Illinois tribes. Hey, you only messed up one of them. Well, we might, it might not. Eat, I, I think I think you might be right. Wyandotte, because Wyandotte, I think, is more of a French pronunciation, which wouldn't be applicable. Yeah, it's probably probably pronounced exactly how it's written. Yeah. But these seven nations formed a powerful confederacy to keep the white men from infringing on their territory. The Shawnee were the most powerful of the tribes and were led by a feared and respected chieftain called, oh boy, here we go, Ranger, why, why would you do this to me? Called Kitugua. Let's just let's just call him Cornstalk because if you translate it, it translates to Cornstalk. So their chieftain called Cornstalk. Oh, so it's a person. Okay, I thought it was like an actual yes. Cornstalk. I did too. But okay, okay, it's not just me then. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's not just you. I literally thought it was a cursed cornfield. <laughs> but no, it's their, it's their, uh, the the Shawnee tribes chieftain Cornstalk. Their chieftain in 1774, when the white settlers were moving down to the Kanawha and Ohio River valleys, the Indian Confederacy prepared to protect their lands by any means necessary. These nations began to mass in a rough line across the point from the Ohio River to the Kanawha River. Were you about to say something? No. I'm, I'm just sitting here listening. Fair enough. I was letting you tell your story. Fair enough. I thought I heard I thought I heard a noise. Um, That's the Mothman. He's behind Probably. you. Probably. It's fine. He, he's just here for the lamp. Either that or Bubba's snoring and my microphone picked it up. It could be that. It could be that too. Who knows? But these nations are preparing for battle here uh their their numbers were about 1200 warriors and they began to make preparations to attack the settlers near an area called point pleasant on the virginia side of the ohio river as word reached the colonial military leaders of the impending attack troops were sent in and faced off against the indians while a number of fighters were fairly even on both sides the native americans were no match for the muskets of the white soldiers the battle ended with about 140 colonials killed with more than twice that uh, number of Indians. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. 
But but uh, okay, so this is taking place near Point Pleasant. Yes. In the 1700s. And then we had stuff happen in the 20s outside of America. Those have been happening in the Point Pleasant area for a while, yeah. it seems. But then they like, I guess Mothman decided to go to Chernobyl and China and stuff like that. And then... Yeah, unless there's multiple Mothmen. Oh, that's a good point. That's another theory is that there's more than one. It's like his cousin's. It's the Moth family. Yeah. Mothman Jr. And then you like know like the Mothman is like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But then like his cousin, like over in Germany, he's like, I don't know about that guy. You know, he. That guy's a little different. He's the one we don't invite to the family picnics. Yeah, he just, he doesn't, doesn't spread his wings the same way as everybody else, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I don't. And Chernobyl Mothman, he got caught in the radiation and everything. He just hasn't been the same. Yeah, he talks to the walls now. Uh, I just don't know. Yeah, he doesn't even go after lamps anymore. Okay, so it could be a family. All right, because I'm like, you know, when we're going from the Point Pleasant around the world, hitting up Chicago and then coming back to Point Pleasant. It's just interesting. The way I look at it is like, if you're thinking about it, like, okay, these, if, if these things are real, usually like with most animals, migration, there's yeah, there's like migration and like, they don't just randomly appear. Like there's usually more than one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Same with like Bigfoot and stuff like that. There's probably more than one. There's only one Bubba. This is true. I mean, technically, there is only one Mothman and one Bigfoot, but other creatures like them. It's not the Mothman, but it's a Mothman. Yeah, Bigfoot's uh, little sister, medium foot. Small foot. Isn't that the dinosaur from Land Before Time? Oh, that's Littlefoot. I, I can't watch that movie. It makes me cry. It's been forever since I've watched Land Before Time. I have seen that movie. It's just I watched it as a kid and sobbed horribly. That's understandable. But uh, getting back into the 1770s, uh, these tribes, after this battle, the tribes retreated westward into the wilds of what is now Ohio. In order to, and in order to keep them from returning, a fort was constructed at the junction of the Kanawha and Ohio rivers. And as time passed, the Shawnee leader Cornstalk made peace with the white men, and he would carry his word to his new friends in 1777 when the British began coaxing the Indians into attacking the rebellious colonies. Soon, the tribes began massing along the Ohio River, intent on attacking the fort, and Cornstalk and Red Hawk, a Delaware chief, had no taste for war with the Americans, and they went to the fort on November 7th to try and negotiate a peace before the fight began. Cornstalk told Captain Arbuckle, who commanded the garrison, that he was opposed to war with the colonists, but that only he and his tribe were holding back from joining on the side of the British. He was afraid that he would be forced to go along with the rest of the Confederacy. When he admitted to Arbuckle that he would allow his men to fight if the other tribes did, Cornstalk, Red Hawk, and another Indian were taken as hostages. The Americans believed that they could use them to keep the other tribes from attacking. But this forced uh, they, they forced the Native Americans into a standoff because none of them wanted to risk the life of their leader. So Cornstalk's name not only struck fear into the hearts of the white settlers up and down the frontier, but it also garnered respect from the other Indian tribes. He was gifted with great oratory skills, fighting ability and military genius. 
Uh, supposedly, it was said that when his fighting tactics were adopted by the Americans, they were able to defeat the British in a number of battles where they had been both outnumbered and outgunned. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of uh, times a brilliant strategist can win a battle against even the greatest weaponry and armor. Or you could just, you know, take my, my method into account here and just, you know, do whatever feels right in the moment and just just go with the whole chaos method because it, the enemy can't predict your movements if even you don't know what you're doing. <sighs> I would much rather fight with a brilliant strategist over whatever you would do. <laughs> exactly. See, my style of fighting is just chaos. Again, I don't know what I'm doing, so you can't know what I'm doing and predict my <laughs> movements. And that, on top of it, whatever I'm doing probably counts as psychological warfare as well. Okay, fair. <laughs> fair. Psychological and biological warfare, most likely. Who knows? Um, Captain, he's taking off his pants. I don't know what to I do. I wasn't trained for this. He's yelling something about it happened again. Why are his pants <laughs> wet? Captain? <laughs> <laughs> Captain, he's loading them into a makeshift catapult. Captain? <laughs> I wasn't prepared. They didn't train me for this. I came here expecting artillery cannons and guns. Why does he have a catapult? Where are his pants? <laughs> See, your opponent won't fight if they're confused. Anyway, enough about my Saturdays at Chili's. As long as you don't go to Dave and Buster's. I got banned from Dave and Buster's. Anyway... Again, back to the 1770s. Although they were taken as hostage, Cornstalk and the other Indians were treated well and were given comfortable quarters, leading many to wonder if the chief's hostage status may have been voluntary in the beginning. Cornstalk assisted his captors in plotting maps of the Ohio River Valley during his imprisonment. So it's possible that he was just like, just tell them you took me prisoner and we'll just hang out here for a little bit and we'll just try to like keep this fight from happening. Which, I mean, if it works, sure. But on November 9th, Cornstalk's son, boy, he couldn't have had a more difficult name. Ilanipsico, how that looks, but it's probably wrong anyway, came to the fort to see his father, and he was also detained. The following day, gunfire was heard from outside the walls of the fort, coming from the direction of the Kanawa River. When the men went out to investigate, they discovered that two soldiers who had left the stockade to deer hunt had been ambushed by Indians, and one of them had escaped, but the other man had been killed. When the soldier's bloody corpse was returned to the fort, the soldiers and the garrison were enraged. Acting against orders, they broke into the quarters where Cornstalk and the other Indians were being held, and even though the men had nothing to do with the crime, they decided to execute the prisoners as revenge. Oh, that's... Yeah, that's 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 not as the kids these days say that that wasn't very cash money of you. Awful. Yeah. But before that happened, as the soldiers burst through the doorway, Cornstalk rose to meet them. And it is said that he stood facing the soldiers with such bravery that they paused momentarily in their attack. It wasn't enough, though, because the soldiers began to open fire with their muskets. Red Hawk tried to escape up through the chimney, but was pulled back down and slaughtered. That's so sad. Like, that really... Yeah. I don't like this. I don't like it, Kraken. Yeah, I know. And Cornstalk's son, 
was shot where he had been sitting on a stool and the other unknown Indian was strangled to death. As for Cornstalk, he was shot eight times before he fell to the floor. I don't like it. Yeah. Usually that's that's how this podcast goes. These stories don't really have the the best of endings. I know. Just don't like it. As Cornstalk lay dying in the smoke-filled room, he was said to have pronounced his now legendary curse. The stories say that he looked upon his assassins and spoke to them. He said, I was the border man's friend. Many times I have saved him and his people from harm. I have never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refuse to join your pale-faced enemies with the Redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. You have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of its peoples be paralyzed by the stain of our blood. I mean, they deserve that. Yeah, pretty much. It's senseless murder. Like, this this is nothing more than senseless murder. Yeah, because those people had nothing to do with with the murder of the soldier. Yeah, and... They were just chilling in the room. Yeah, and it's not... I don't... I... I don't support war and violence and things like that, but if you kill someone on the battlefield versus you just walk into someone in their quarters and kill them. Yeah. That's like you said, that's just straight up murder because like they don't even have a weapon. They're not trying to fight back. They're just you're just shooting fish in a barrel, basically. Yeah. Actually, did you know that it's really difficult slash impossible to shoot fish in a barrel? I didn't know that. Yeah, because shooting anything in water is... um, Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not so difficult if the barrel is literally packed with fish so much so that they barely have room to move. Yeah, yeah. It's just that once the the bullet enters the water, it changes um, velocity and power and, like, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But I guess, like, if it's, like packed full or if it's literally just fish and no water in the barrel yeah then it's different but yeah yeah point being there was no fight it was just murder for the sake of murder so cornstalk spoke these words according to the legend and then he died the the bodies of the other indians were then taken and dumped into the kanawa river but Cornstalk's corpse was buried near the fort on point pleasant overlooking the junction of the kanawa and ohio rivers and here he he remained there for many years, but uh, supposedly he would not rest in peace because besides it, it, it would seem that the curse holds some weight because besides the silver bridge collapse in the Mothman story, there supposedly have been several plane crashes, a train carrying toxic chemicals, derailing and spilling its contents into the local water supply, fires, floods, just all kinds of accidents in that area. Well, how, like, I'm not surprised he doesn't rest in peace because ghosts are born of violent, horrible deaths. And I don't know if there is one worse than what just happened here. Yeah, pretty much murdered an innocent man. Yeah, like he he did not want to fight them. And he came to them in peace, and then they kept him captive. As he said in the curse, uh, I came I came to your fort as your friend and you murdered me. Yeah. Yeah. And like that right there is like the definition of, hey, you're going to make a ghost. Exactly. But that whole thing tying into the Mothman uh, encounters and all of that, all of this stuff besides the 
whatever happened in the 1770s, all of that took place within months of the Mothman being seen, the injured cold, the other smiling entity, the ball of light, all of that took place pretty close to the Mothman, the first Mothman sighting. So people think that the Mothman could be in, it's either just a creature or it's an alien visiting the area, uh, similar to uh, injured cold and the other smiling creature. Um, but it says the, the cornstalk curse might let us take the view that the Mothman is just an outcome of the curse. Maybe an ancient omen brought to life for some reason with him being associated with the Silver Bridge collapse. And given that the town of Point Pleasant was built near the fort where Cornstalk was killed, is not lost on those leaning towards believing that the curse is the cause of all of the misfortunes in this area. This just makes me angry. Like, I'm so, I know it happens hundreds of years ago, but this just makes me so angry. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like I don't want to equate it to a, a, a show or a movie or something like that, because this was real. But it's like, you, you know, an actor did a good job with their character when they physically make you angry. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like, it's that same feeling. Just reading something makes you angry and there's nothing you could have done about yeah. it. Well, like um, when you say that, the the kid who played Joffrey in Game of Thrones. Oh, God, yes. Jo- the, the kid who played Joffrey and then um, what's her name? Uh, the lady in pink from Harry Potter. Umbridge. Oh, Umbridge. Yeah. Like, uh, but I know he actually he had issues like going in public and stuff like that because people hated him so much and it's like yeah yeah uh, agreed on the character i hate that character i some people couldn't tell the difference in fiction from reality and took it out on the actor yeah whereas this one like if i could find uh mr arbuckle that was his name right uh, believe well I don't see it wasn't Arbuckle that did it Arbuckle was just the commander and these soldiers yeah but it's his fault it's his fault well yeah if he didn't build the fort there in the first place and try to take their land and everything then yeah the, all of this wouldn't have came to be so I mean in a roundabout way yeah kind of if I could, if I could uh, meet him on the street that would be different because he actually yeah he, he's, he's, he's catching hands <laughs> on site. Oh my god, I forgot to tell you the other night during the Reading Royals game, the announcer uh, there was a fight in the game. Oh no. And the announcer literally said they're throwing hands and all I could think about was you. I was like, oh my god. That would be for me, that's like the only reason I would watch like NASCAR or hockey games is for the wrecks and the fights. See, I, I love hockey. I love hockey me wanting to go sit down on the front oh is this your favorite team no i want to see the fights oh well we always get glass seats at the royals because they're super cheap because it's minor league hockey but um even when they're not fighting like it's such a physical game because they're literally (laughs) skating as fast as they can to hit another person and smush them against a wall Mm -hmm. so like yeah yeah, it's all fun and games sitting on the the with the glass seats and until like the fight happens and it causes like the glass to shatter right in front of you. It's very hard to shatter that glass. It's very hard. Very hard, but not impossible. 
I've seen it happen. But it's very, 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 very rare. Um, it's it's probably more likely to get in a plane crash, and we have talked about how likely that is. I mean, there was a video of a dude in the stands who was sitting in in the seats there, right in front of the glass, and he was angry, I guess, because his team was losing. He punched the glass and it shattered the whole panel. There had to have been a weakness in it already. Probably, but still, I'm just saying. I yeah, I know. I see. I get what you're saying, but it's it's hard to break that glass. Yeah. It's hard. Come for the hockey, stay for the violent accidents and fights. Because mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. you know, nothing can go wrong with a bunch of fully grown men with blades on their feet going at like Mach 5 across the rink. Well, that's one of the things that's really scary is like if you go dead, there have been people who have gotten cut very severely. Um, oh, yeah. No, I saw a video. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets pretty bad. But depending on when you come up and visit him, <clears throat> um, if it's during hockey season, we'll have to take you to a game. Well, I might have to plan it during hockey season, but I swear if Gritty comes in, I'm running across the ice. How do you think you're going to be getting to the ice? Don't worry about it. Gritty comes in, I'm gone. Yeah, you can leave. You you look over, see Gritty, look back. I'm gone, out of my seat. I'm on the ice. How did I get there? I don't know. Um, I think you should uh, come visit us Saturday, January 28th. I don't like that you have a specific date picked out for that. Mind telling me what happens on that date? Flyers affiliation night at the Reading Royals with an appearance from Gritty. I knew it. <laughs> we're actually going to that game. We already have tickets. Fair enough. We're also, and we're going to Star Wars night. Oh. Uh, Star Wars night is uh, January 7th. So get your butt up here quick if you want to go to that one. What? What is Star Wars night exactly? Character appearances... A costume contest, a Chewbacca impression contest, specialty jersey, and two dollars off craft beers. I get would I get beaten up if I showed up to Star Wars night dressed in Star Trek attire. I would laugh. I would do it. I would join you. It's actually better than what my dad wants to do. My dad thinks it would be hilarious to go to a game dressed like the refs and cheer for the refs. I would do it. <laughs> tell, tell your dad I'm in. <laughs> Like, I'm just going to show up in Star Trek attire and then I'm going to do the Spock hand thing at people and I'm just going to go live long and may the force be with you. I'm just going to get quotes like mixed up as best as I can. I'll even start quoting Lord of the Rings. Beam me up, Anakin. The beacons are lit. The Jedi calls for aid. All right. Well, thank you for the story. And we do hope that everybody can kind of Make their own uh, opinions on the the whether or not the Mothman is real, or if it's a curse, or what it is. If it's just Krakow in disguise, could be. But also, thank you to Ranger for researching the injured cold portion of the story. Yeah, this was a tag team effort between the two of you. Yeah, Ranger did half. I did the other half. Ranger did the good half. Because. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Cracko. And then we will see you guys next week for another fun tale. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com.
And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.